Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. It was only a gambler's marker, a promise to pay worth $1,000. And I was hired to find it, which sounded easy, until I realized that it meant the whole future to two men, freedom to a third, and death to the girl in the cottage. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Promise to Pay. It started over a bottle of port at five o'clock in the afternoon, when Mama Nodella, a proud old lady who ran a restaurant, Bet me I couldn't prepare a dish of chicken cacciatore. I never pass up a bet. So at 5.30, I picked up a can of chicken, and at 6, had gone to work on it. At a quarter after 7, everything was ready for the pan, and my enthusiasm was at a high ebb until the telephone rang. And what I thought was a check call from Mama Nodella turned out instead to be Garfield Randall. He was a used-to-be client who at 32 was currently setting the L.A. business world on its ears. Article about me in this morning's paper. Young Randall, probably next head of Continental Land and Trust? Yes, that's it. Chairman of the board, isn't it, Gar? Yes. Job I've been after for two years. So? Well, it's a job that'll go to somebody else at noon tomorrow, Phil. Unless you can get me out of a nasty mess I'm in. What's her name? Uh, Terry... <laughs> How did you know it was a woman, yeah, It's Phil? a trade secret. What do you want me to do? Well, uh, come over here to my place, 91 Laurel Canyon, immediately. Mm -hmm. I'll explain then. You can make it, can't you, Phil? I, I mean, now, right away? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Right away, Gar. But it hurts. Arrivederci, cacciatore. Oh, come in, Marlo, quickly. I'm due there at eight, and it's, it's almost that now. A uh, small point, Gar, but just where is there? Oh, where... Uh, Terry Dodge's cottage over in the valley, 3840 Sunsweat Drive, mm -hmm. uh, just beyond Arthur Murray's place on Ventura. I'm expected because the lady wants $20,000 to keep her mouth shut. About what? The fact that uh, a few days ago, an innocent evening with some new friends ended up with me gambling and losing $1,000 at Paul Naylor's club on Lancashire Boulevard, also in the valley, 3100 North. I didn't have the cash on me, so he took my IOU. Your marker would interest who in particular? Only the entire board of directors of Continental Land and Trust. They feel their executives should be above that sort of thing, even once in a while. Mm -hmm. And this Terry Dodge, can she prove that you lost a thousand gambling? Well, according to this message here, yes. Came a few minutes before I called you, together with my picture, which she returned, frame and all. Here. No. Oh. God, dear, I gave Naylor the thousand and pick up your note as requested. 
But now I'm confused. Do I give it back to you or submit it to your board of directors tomorrow? <laughs> oh, by the way, the chinchilla we saw last week is on sale. I hear only $20,000 is bought right away. Probably cost more tomorrow. See what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Drop around and see me at 8 tonight, will you? I'd like your advice on the matter. Much love, Terry. P.S. Don't worry about the safety of the note, darling. I have the perfect hiding place for it. Hmm. Tender, huh? <laughs> Tell me, Gar, how close were you in this vampire? Oh, we went together for about a year. But it was getting cold. Because you've been on the way up? Because she's been on the way down, Mama. Hmm. Why'd you give her the money to deliver in the first place? Well, you see, Phil, I... I couldn't afford to go near a gambler like Paul Naylor once I'd been nominated for the chairmanship. Mm -hmm. Of course, I didn't suspect for a minute that Terry would do anything like this. So when I didn't hear from Terry by six, I called Naylor. He told me that she had already delivered the money, but uh, he also told me that she'd burned the note in front of him at his suggestion. Which might mean that Terry Dodge is just bluffing, you know. Yes, or that Paul Naylor is just lying. Mm. Your job, Phil, is to find out the truth as soon as possible. And if I do and the note does exist, what then, Guy? Then I pay. I have to. It's my whole future. Yeah. Call you in an hour, Guy, from the valley. After Randall generously settled the matter of my fee with two crisp $100 bills, I got into my car and wound through Laurel Canyon into the San Fernando Valley in Sunswept Drive, where I parked away from number 3840, which was the kind of all-alone, green-and-white, ivy-choked cottage that life insurance ads wonder if you'll own when you're 65 and out of work. With one exception. The place was lit up like opening night at a Hollywood delicatessen. And when I got close to the front door, which was half open and splashing bright yellow over the mat-marked welcome, I heard a radio from someplace deep inside, playing slow, sad swing. When I knocked twice and got only more Dixieland for an answer, I walked in calling Terry Dodge's name out loud as I moved through the empty living room. I couldn't tell why, but even as I said the name, I had the uncomfortable feeling that I, I was wasting my breath. And a minute later, when I entered the bedroom, I was sure of it. Because there, every drawer, closet, and cubbyhole had been turned inside out. And in the middle of all that, and face up on the carpet, was the still form of a beautiful blonde woman in a black silk hostess gown. The monogram in white over her breast pocket said she was Terry Dodge. The ugly circle of dark red on the side of her head said she was dead. Next to her body, I found the pieces of two airline tickets for Mexico City. Beyond that, the brass candelabra that had killed her. I dropped the tickets into my pocket and then went back to the living room and a telephone called my client. But when I reached for it, it went off. Hello? Hello, Tess. Friend of the family, why? Well, I'm curious by nature, friend of the family. Now, is Terry there? Yeah. She can't come to the phone right now. Any message? Yeah, there is. Tell her Rip Stranigan wants to talk to her, if you don't mind. I don't. Oh, Terry. It's Rip Stranigan. What? Okay. Sorry, Stranigan. She'll have to call you back in a minute and... And what? And excuse me. But an unexpected visitor just dropped in. A beautiful one at that. With a gun. Which she knows how to use very well. The lady was tall with dark eyes and darker hair. It framed her face the color of warm honey, and she was wearing something white and plunging. 
which from the waist up had all the material in it of the average necktie. Who are you? Rip Stranigan. Mean anything? Only that you're a liar. I've seen Stranigan, and in the first place, Terry's boyfriend's an ex-football player about twice your size. Oh? Uh, also, he's from Texas, and you couldn't be. No. And just between us, you're much better looking. So once more, who are you? Little boy blue, who are you? Me? Well, I'm Annabelle, Terry's sister. Always come home with a thirty-eight in your hand? Well, I only use this gun, Mr. Blue, because I thought you were a prowler. Now, switch the radio off so you can concentrate. How about the truth? Hmm? All right. I'm a private detective named Philip Marlowe came here to talk to Terry Dodge. When I found the door open and nobody home, I decided to wait. Now, I can't wait any longer because I'm late for an appointment. So if you'll tell Terry I call, I'll appreciate it. Good night, Annabelle. Uh, wait a minute before you go, one thing. What's that? You were wrong about being little boy blue. Oh. You're prettier. Good night. My ego sent the lady went for me. But my professional cynicism labeled her local Matahari and suggested that I keep both feet on the ground. So when I was out of her sight at the front door, I tried the oldest trick in the book, which was opening it and then slamming it hard from the inside, which worked. Because when I quietly moved back to where we'd been standing... She was already in the bedroom. And I was glad to hear, surprised at what she'd found there. When she ran back into the living room, her face now the color of wet ashes, grabbed for the telephone and dialed a number that was more than the three digits that would bring the police. Hello? I was close enough to hear what she this said. This is Maxine. She's dead. Yes, in her bedroom. And the place has been turned upside down. So somebody else is after that note, too. No. No, only a private detective named Marlowe. Well, he didn't act like it. Said he was waiting for her. I'll tell you all about it later when I see... What? Keep looking. Listen, maybe you didn't understand me. Terry Dodge is dead. She's been murdered. Well, Maxine Rossi doesn't want to be standing around with jam on her face when the police arrive. It's hard on the reputation. Well, all right, one more look around, but believe me, it'll be a fast one. Goodbye. When she hung up and inched back toward the bedroom like it was a snake pit, I headed for the door and kept going until I was outside and over to where I'd left my car parked in the shadow of a huddle of dwarf palms. But then as I was about to get in... What I thought was just another tree reached out with both hands, grabbed me by the lapels, and slammed me hard against the side of my own car. Before I could get back onto my feet, what had to be the ex-gridiron great from Texas had both my gun and my wallet out and was smiling with more teeth than I'd ever seen before. Well, the friend of the family is a private detective, I see. Yeah, and the athlete's a scholar. He reads. Shut up, Marlowe. Smart aleck talk won't get you out of this. Now, what were you doing in my girl's apartment? Looking for a blackmailer named Terry Dodge. And before you get all worked up, muscles, make up your mind. You want the truth or hot air out of me? You got a lot of nerve, fella. Doesn't answer the question. All right. I'll take the truth. But if it's anything but that, I'll break you in two. Now, start talking. Why'd you call Terry a blackmailer? Because until tonight, she was up to a mascara and a deal that called for a man named Garfield Randall to pay her 20000 bucks. To keep his future intact. I don't believe you. I never heard her speak that name. Proves the point, Strenigan. They've been going together off and on for a year now. What? Why, just last night, Terry told me that she didn't even want to see any other man. And as of last night, that might have been the truth. Because a few hours ago, this Randall got his framed picture back from her with interest. The demand for the $20,000? The same. Strenigan, what would you say if I told you Terry Dodge has been murdered? No, Marlowe! You're lying! Stranigan, let Lying! Let go of my throat! Lying! Let go! Let go! I'm sorry, fella. 
Do you? <clears throat> do you have any idea who did it? Yeah. Yeah, but there's, there's still a little groundwork to be done before, before I go to the police. You mean nobody knows about this yet? <laughs> Outside of a girl named Maxine Rossi, someone she talked to on the telephone and the murderer? No. Now tell me, Stranigan, did you... Have you Terry speak of either this Rossi girl or a gambling note that a guy named Paul Naylor held? No. No, I didn't, Marlowe. But where do those two fit in? That Stranigan comes under the heading of groundwork. Now, if you can keep all this under your sombrero until you hear from me again, I'll take my gun and wallet and get going. What do you say? I say yes. On one condition, Marlowe. When you do get to the killer, I'll get first crack at him. Fair enough. Now, where can I reach you? 4812 North Ogden Drive. Think you'll need any help? I don't know. Paul Naylor's my next stop, and according to the talk downtown, he's a hard man to get next to. I'll call you later. The club Paul Naylor ran out on North Lancashire didn't have a name, but the numbers 3100 were taped with luminous scotch light. Easy to find. However, unless you knew the man behind the peephole, you were nowhere. So 20 minutes later, when I was out of my car and walking toward the steel-plated back door, I decided that getting in to see the head man of the house had to be approached like that was the last thing in the world I wanted to do. I stayed in the shadows of the building and moved a slow step at a time until I saw a little oily man in a pink shirt, white knit tie, and fuzzy black fedora nearby notice me. Then I moved faster until I was at the steel door, and so was he. With a forty-five in his hand. Lost something, mister? Uh, uh no. I was, uh... What's the gun for? Trespassers. These are private grounds. Oh, I, I'm sorry. I didn't know that. I'll leave right away. I thought this Never was... Never mind the... what you thought. Now get over there. Stand very still while I make a phone call. The inside. Phone call? What for? Cops? <laughs> no, stupid. The gentleman who lives here, Mr. Paul Naylor. I think he'd like to talk to you while you can still talk. <laughs> just a moment, the second act of Philip Marlowe. But first, a man who knows something about cars makes a better driver than a man who's completely blank about what's underneath the hood. And in the same way, a man who knows something about our American economic system is able to be a better citizen than a man who hasn't any idea at all about what makes the wheels go around. Understanding our system of mass production enables one to feel renewed pride in the high standard of living this kind of production has helped provide. And it's understanding, too, that enables us to work at some of our system's defects, like sharp ups and downs in prices and jobs. So read, study, listen. And with all of us working together, we can increase our productivity still further and provide for even wider distribution of benefits. Now with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Promise to Pay. pink silk shirt spoke briefly into the phone, then breathed garlic in my face while his free hand darted neatly inside my jacket. When it came out, it brought 38 with it. Then he jerked me around, unlocked the heavy back door, shoved me through, and marched me on the business end of his 45 down a strip of blue carpet ankle deep to another door of glossy blonde mahogany. He slammed me face first up against it and signaled for an audience. 
and the door swung open. He prodded me. And I stumbled into an office of jungle green drapes and pale beige furniture upholstered in leopard skin. The face that peered at me over eight feet of desktop smiled from the ears down. From the ears up, I'd never known what smiling meant. We have a front door for our friends. I know. That's why I went to the back. I figured I'd pick up an escort there and bypass all that muscular red tape you keep out in front. <laughs> maybe that's smart figuring, maybe not. Depends. What do you want? Call you a liar, Naylor. Oh! Mind your manners, stupid. You're way out of line. You're building up quite an account, Oily. You take some long chances, mister. What's your name? Marlowe. I still want to know why you lied to a friend of mine about burning his marker. Marlowe, huh? Wait outside, Quincy. I'll call you. Okay, Mr. Naylor. All right, Marlowe. So you're Randall's boy, right? I've talked to him. When Randall called you, you told him that his girl, Terry Dodge, had delivered the money okay, but that you saw her burn his marker. That's what I thought I saw at the time. What'd you really see? She put the marker in her purse and started out of here, but I called her back and told her to burn it. Why? Because I don't like my name floating around, Marlowe, especially now where things tightened up like they are. So she went over to the fireplace there and burned a piece of paper. But it wasn't the note, huh? Uh, right boy. That call from Randall gave me ideas. I checked the pieces left in the fireplace, and they weren't even the same kind of paper as the marker. So somebody's shooting an angle, Marlowe, one with my name on it. I don't like that. I suppose you got the marker back all right. Not yet. However, I intend to. Mm-hmm. But on your first try, you got too rough too fast. And kill Terry before she talked, is that it? You know, if I were you, I'd bite my tongue off before I'd say a thing like that. Even joking. Who's joking? Girl's been murdered your way. Smart people die every day. Lots of ways. Yes. Well, thanks for the information. Good night. Sit down. Wait a minute, Naylor. The interview's over. Not quite. What's Randall steamed up about? Blackmail, which puts you both in the same boat. If I get the market to protect him, I have to protect you at the same time for an oyster charge. Let's be sensible. Sensible? Uh, okay. Quincy? Yeah, Mr. Naylor? Going out. Sit on Marlowe here. Real hard, if necessary. Till I get back. Sure. It'll be a pleasure, won't it, Mr. Marlowe? Mm -hmm. Oily straightened his tie and sat down opposite me, humming to himself. Then he unfolded a racing form, tilted his chair back, and apparently forgot about me. He was a perfect setup for a very old gag. Because the two back legs of his chair were perched on the far edge of a green hooked rug that I could reach easily. His eyes okayed my request to light a smoke, and then dropped my matches. When I bent down to get them, I grabbed the rug instead and Yanked hard! <laughs> Couldn't resist, could you, sucker? I'm faster than I look. Uh, come on, I should have known. Well, 100%. Now I got an excuse to work you. Wait a minute, Naylor will want to talk to me when he gets back, Stooge. You'll be able to talk. Only maybe you won't think so good. Get back there in the corner. Go on, move. That's it. Now turn around and face the wall. He kept the forty-five pointed in my middle even while he shifted it to his left hand. Then he dipped his right into the side pocket and brought it out, clenched around an ugly set of brass knucks. There was a tight knot in the pit of my stomach as he started toward me. <laughs> I just made up my mind to try for his gun regardless when I heard it. <laughs> when I turned and looked... Oily was sprawled face down on the floor and sprinkled with chunks of shattered crockery and standing over him like a victorious gladiator was Maxine Rossi. Marlowe, I... 
came as soon as I found out you were in here. He is so vicious, this Quincy. Not at the moment, baby, thanks to you. But I don't get There's it. No How did you... no time for talk now. Come to the roulette table as soon as you can. Hurry, darling. I watched her slip through a side door. Then, rolled Quincy over, got my gun back in its holster, and all of seven seconds later went out through the same side door. It opened into a lush room, 50 by 50, checkerboarded with people bunched around evenly spaced gaming tables. I moved toward the click of a roulette wheel and found Maxine there throwing blue chips around with a subtle recklessness that meant she had a fortune to squander or that she was a shill for Naylor. How's your luck, baby? Still holding? Uh-huh. It is so far. But it may change any instant now. Yeah, well, I guess it's my turn then. Come on, I'll pick up some chips. Ten black. Marla, we got to get you out of here. You work for Naylor, don't you, Maxie? Yes, but not like I'd work for you, Marla. Oh? He sent you up to Terry Dodge's place tonight. Find out what she wanted with that marker. Mm. And it was Naylor you called when you found Terry's body, huh? Yeah. He just left Marla not a minute ago. Fifty double O. Where was he heading? I don't know. But one of those scraps of paper that wasn't burned in the fireplace. There was a telephone number of a travel agency on it. He had that with him. A travel agency? Yeah. That might be the one shot I need. Listen, Maxie, I... Uh-oh. The boys have got me pegged. They're moving in. I was afraid of this. Wait till the lights go out, darling, and then run for it. The lights? Baby, I love you. What about you, Maxie? Don't worry. My father was a longshoreman in San Francisco. I don't know how to get She walked slowly as far as the back corridor, then started to run, and as the two gorillas angled toward the room toward me, I pretended to study the odds on the crap table while I edged for the door. They were almost up to me when the room went suddenly black. And a girl, Maxie. I ducked low and belted for the front entrance all stops open. And a few seconds later, I was outside. I put 50 yards between me and the front porch before I so much as slowed down. When I did, I saw something else. Paul Naylor himself across the street just getting into his car. I pulled my gun out and ran for him. Hey, Naylor! Otto, uh, how did you get... Say, what's going on? I want that phone number you got in your pocket. Phone number? I don't know what you're talking about. That's too bad because I don't have time to explain! <laughs> minutes and all of five miles later when I stopped at a gas station and climbed into a phone booth to call the travel agency number on a half-burned piece of paper that I'd taken from Paul Naylor. I was sure now that at least I'd get an answer to fit the two airline tickets to Mexico City, but the girl who answered the phone exploded that dream with her opening line. Good evening, Canadian and Northern Railway Agency. Canada. It didn't make sense. On a hunch, I shot a girl with a description of Terry Dodge and hit pay dirt on the first try. A woman who matched it had made a reservation that afternoon to leave for Canada at midnight alone. But then the girl asked me a question. And the answer to that made my next stop my client as fast as I could get there. The drive into Laurel Canyon and up the twisting trail they called the road put some new gray in my hair. But before I got to Randall's house, I pulled over, parked, and climbed the rest of the way quietly on foot. A long, brown convertible that wasn't Randall squatted under the bushes beside the house. I crossed the patio and went in through an open window. I, said, I could hear voices, so I inched along the back hall to an open study door and listened. And don't try anything cute, buddy, or I'll break you in two, and I mean it. Well, what do you say? Give me the money, and I'll give you that marker. Well, I... How do I know you've got the marker? Where did you get it? I killed that double-crossing girlfriend of ours, sweet Miss Terry Dodge, to get it. That's where. What? You... You... You mean Terry's dead? Yeah. We were pulling this deal together and then going to Mexico. But she got greedy, was going to get the money and take off for Canada alone. So now I'm doing it alone. Get the dough, Randall. Time's short. Wait, I... I want to see the marker first. Well, sure. Hand me that picture there. That's right, pretty boy. The one Terry sent back to you today. Well, come on. All right. 
Here. Thanks. Hey, what are you... What? The marker. It was behind my picture all the time. Yeah, Terry was real smart. And so was that blabbermouth Marlowe. He tipped me off to the whole thing when he told me Terry sent this back to you today. The marker wasn't any place else, so it had to be here. And here it is, Randall. All yours. For 20 grand. No. No, I won't pay it. I had to pay Terry blackmail for that note, but I won't shield the killer. All right, Randall. Have it your way. But I'm walking out that front door, and that means i got to leave you dead on the floor. Randall, that... Not this time, Marlowe. Oh, Marlowe, that, that was awfully close. Never mind that. Come on, let's get him. Oh, you missed him. Yeah, stay here. I'll get him. I... Oh, my car. I left it halfway down the hill. He'll be ten miles away the way he's driving before I can get to it. Well, he's got to be good to drive those roads that fast. Yeah. Bill. He went over. He was going too fast to get around your car. He went over. Yeah. And if anybody ever had it coming, it was Rip Stranigan. All American. By the time we got down to the crash, the canyon was swarming with people. An ambulance and two prowl cars wind in, and 30 minutes later, the mess was all cleaned up. The police verdict was speed on a dangerous road, and the doctor's forecast was DOA. So Randall and I went back to his place and spent another 30 minutes over some much-needed brandy while I told him everything that had happened. Great, Scott. And it seemed like such a simple thing, Phil. Mm-hmm. Pay a gambling debt and get the marker. Yeah. Hard to realize all this happened just because of that. Well, that plus the fact that you let a pair of nasty characters get you in a spot. Yeah. It's also hard to believe that they're both dead now and it's all over. Mm. And you, you did a wonderful job, Phil. I had some wonderful help from Miss Maxine Rossi. Uh, oh, there's a kid with lots on the ball, believe Say, me. Hey, do you think she got away from Naylor all right? With her talent, you can count on it. <laughs> But just to play safe, I'm going to let Mr. Naylor know it's hands off or I'll see his joint rip wide open. I'd sure like to help, but uh, I've just sown my last untamed oat. Yeah, I think so. Well, you're in good shape now. Boys at headquarters are reasonable. I'll run along and tell them what they need to know. Okay. Oh, oh Phil, uh, just uh, one thing first. Hmm? Uh, when you called the agency, the, the Canadian Railway, you said the girl there asked you a question, and that's why you came up here so fast. What did she say? Oh, she wanted to know if I was the tall gentleman from Texas with the nice teeth who had inquired earlier about the lady's reservations. Uh-huh. And he got all upset, which, of course, could only mean Rip Stranigan. And that explained the tickets from Mexico, the murder of the ransacked house, and all the rest of it. Oh, I see. You know, the more I think about it, Gar, the luckier you get. Good night. Happy board meetings. <laughs> It was two o'clock in the morning. And the thought of my kitchen littered with dead chicken, raw rice, and the jumble of spices practically turned my stomach until I opened my apartment door. And then, one step at a time, I got it. The delicious odor of chicken, gacciatore, cooked to perfection. The sight of a gleaming table set in candlelight. The sound of a cork being pulled from a bottle of wine. And all done in a fine Italian hand. The hand of a longshoreman's daughter from San Francisco. And then, 
a startling idea hit me. You know, if Maxine Rossi could only... But she can. You know this is dangerous? Oh, brother... Adventures of Philip Marlowe, created by Raymond Chandler, star Gerald Moore, and are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Mel Dinelli, Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Bill Johnstone, Betty Lou Gerson, Barney Phillips, John Daner, and Jack Crucian. The special music is by Richard O'Rant. Be sure to be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... When it started, the tide was high on the San Pedro waterfront. And a hot-tempered kid had murder on his mind. But there was a knife at my throat, a beating under the piers, and a corpse on the beach before the tide went out again. And the kid was finally stopped. Just about an hour from now, most of these same CBS network stations will bring you the hour-long Sing It Again program, a CBS Saturday night favorite, and the show with radio's biggest jackpot. Of course, tonight the jackpot's down to only $50,000, because last week somebody guessed the identity of the phantom voice. Still, $50,000 isn't hay. $25,000 is invaluable prizes for correctly guessing the new phantom's identity. Then there's an additional $25,000, this time in cold cash, if the phantom guesser can answer just one more question about the phantom. There'll be other prizes, too, for cracking one of the many delightful riddle songs. So be sure to stick around for Sing It Again. This is Roy Rowan speaking. Now, listen to Gangbusters, which follows immediately over most of these same CBS stations. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. When it started, the tide was high on the San Pedro waterfront. And a hot-tempered kid had murder on his mind. But there was a knife at my throat, a beating under the piers, and a corpse on the beach before the tide went out again. And the kid was finally stopped. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in... The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, Night Tide. It all happened in San Pedro the harbor of Los Angeles. The lights on the ships were fuzzy through the wet mist that creeps up out of the ocean every night. And I drove slowly looking for the establishment of Mike Basso, my new client. One side of the crooked street was nothing but the smell and the sound of oily salt water sloshing through the pilings beneath the piers. And the other side was a tangle of warped, dingy buildings, 
equipped to satisfy the thirsts of reckless men who never get beyond the waterfront of any port. The foghorn out on the breakwater began to bellow as I parked near a U-shaped pier labeled Basso Docks Private and walked past a line of moored fishing boats to a squat two-story office. The bottom floor was dark, but the second floor had lights on. So I started up the steep wooden stairs and was halfway to the top when I caught the voices. I don't want dumb excuses, Sean. One I'd already heard over the phone when I was hired. It was my client, Mike Basso. You'll make them jump or I'll get somebody who can. These boats got to be handled faster. Why, even the crook Johnny Dyke was better on this job than you are. Johnny Dyke? Why, I ought to... Uh, Get out of my way. The big guy with the Latin jaw shoved past me and stomped down the stairs. So I went on up into the office. Mike Basso looked like a block of concrete. His 220 thick pounds hunched over a scarred roll-top desk. As I walked in, he swung a heavy bulldog head around and glared at me. You never heard a knocking first, I guess. You, Marlowe? That's right. The moose that just left here got me all out of the mood for courtesy. That's Sharky, my crew pusher. Yeah. Good man, Miss Flo. Come here. Sit down. We got other business. Have drink cognac. Thanks. Okay? Now, there's a hothead punk by the name of Johnny Dyke. I sent him to prison three years ago for stealing money from me. I made it as tough as I could for him. Any special reason why? Sure. Because I trust a fellow who works for me. Uh-huh. Johnny Dyke used to have Sharky's job. But he took advantage. When the police grabbed him and found my money in his own house, he squealed like a pig and said he was framed. Like all cheap punks do. Hmm. How does this get around to you wanting a private investigator? Because Johnny Dyke is out of prison. Got out yesterday on parole. And he's back in town now. Hey, you. What you looking at? Your clock. How come it says 11.30 or 20 to 8? It's electric. It was turned off last night. And I didn't start it yet. Now, look. I was here with Ed Giles when he heard some noise on my private launch out there. He went down to see about it and... Who's Ed Giles? My general manager. While he was gone, the lights went out in here. That's when I got clubbed on the head. When I went down, I got kicked around. Plenty. I'd be killed right now, but Sharky happened to come along and the guy was scared off of me. Well, did you happen to see who it was? No. Ed Giles did. He got a good look. He admitted it. Only he claims he don't know who it was. But he lies. On account of he's an old friend of Johnny Dyke's. Well, maybe Giles isn't lying. What makes you so certain it was Johnny who slugged you? They found this. Just a book of matches, huh? Mm-hmm. But see how the edges are crimped. Johnny Dyke always did that. He's nervous, all the time fidgeting. Sure, he might as well have left his calling card for me. Ah, with Johnny, all right. Okay, Basso, but before you get too far in, I'll tell you something. I don't go in for bodyguarding. Who wants a bodyguard? Here's what you do, Marlowe. Find that punk, see what he's got in mind. He beat me up once. Maybe that's all he wants. Or maybe he's coming back to put a knife in me. Just find out and let me know. That's all. I looked out at the fishing boats along the pier, gently nudging each other while Mike Basso told me that Johnny had a blonde wife named Christine who ran the Albatross Cafe 
and that Ed Giles lived alone in a house at 43 Terminal Road. That was enough for a starter. So I said I'd keep in touch and left. As I walked off the pier, the blinking neon light from the sign across the street made a swirling green veil out of the mist between me and my car. So I almost got up to it before I saw her, leaning lazily against the door on the driver's side. A girl in a tight black silk dress, cheap fur jacket, and double ankle strap spikes. She smiled with one corner of her red mouth as I walked up to her and stopped. Hello, sugar. Hiya, sweetheart. The name's Ginger. Oh, that's too bad. <laughs> Ginger always gives me hives. Don't be like that. What did Mike Basso have to say? Yeah, we were talking business, baby, that's all. Say, tell me, which way to Terminal Road? Uh, it intersects about ten blocks down. Mm-hmm. What's the number? 43. Oh, you'll want to turn right then. Ed's place is a cozy, secluded one by the water. Oh, thanks. You know Mr. Giles, huh? Yeah, he's around Mike all the time. He's nothing. Well, I'll see you around. So long, handsome. <laughs> Want something? You Giles, Mike Basso's man? Yeah. So what? I'm Marlowe, private detective. I'm looking for Johnny Dyke. Why'd you come here? Because you're a friend of his, the only one. I haven't seen or heard from him, so I'm afraid I can't help you. Now, wait a minute. Let's go inside. I'd like to talk about the kid. He's put himself in a pretty hopeless situation coming back here to Pedro. What do you think? Because he's got enemies like Mike Basso and Sharky? Yeah. What's he going to do? Fight it out or be smart and leave town? Listen, private investigator, I told you once. I don't know because I haven't seen him. You're a liar. You saw him last night. You're working for Mike, aren't you? Get out, Peter. Don't shove. I'll shove harder than that, brother. Okay, Giles. We'll try it the hard way. Now, where's Johnny? I, I don't know. Come on, get up, get up. Let's play again. You saw him last night, didn't you? Didn't you? Oh, Oh, I'm about 11.30. I was standing on the deck of Mike's launch when I heard a commotion and looked up. I, I saw Johnny jump down the stairs from Mike's office and run off the pier. I haven't seen him since, and that's the truth. Okay. Sorry I had to make a squeal on a friend. Now, where's the Albatross Cafe? The Albatross? Yeah. On the corner of Front and Castle Avenue. But look, can't you leave Chris out of this? She's a good kid. She's been through a lot already. Think Johnny's going to leave her out of it? Besides, it's for her own good that I want to see her. Yeah, I suppose you're right. But I, I'll tell you something for your own good, too, Marlowe. If you find Johnny Dyke, don't push him too hard. He was tough before he left. Now he'll, he'll have rawhide for brains. Depend on it. At the corner of Front and Castle, I spotted the Albatross Cafe. Half on land, half teetering on a set of spindly stilts ringing the high water mark with jagged lumps of barnacles. I parked down the street and started back when the door swung open and the lantern-jawed moose Sharky lumbered out. I watched him cross the street without seeing me and disappear between two buildings. I waited a couple of minutes and then I went in. Took a booth near the front. Place was neat and clean, even to tablecloths. A soft, brown-eyed blonde in a crisp peasant dress picked up a menu and came over Good evening, sir. Chris? Yeah. Oh. Well, Chris, it's probably not on the menu around here, but how about a double order of plain facts, straight? What are you talking about? Johnny. You remember Johnny Dyke, your husband? 
Who are you, mister? Private detective named Marlowe. All I want to do is talk to him. Chris, just talk. Is he here? No, I... I haven't seen him. He hasn't even called me. Hmm. How do you feel about this bird known as Sharky? He's a lot. Oh? He always crowded Johnny, and now he's got his job. I hear he knows something. Have you seen him lately? No, I haven't. That's funny. He just left here. Okay, so I'm a liar. Maybe you're just blind. I've heard that love does that, baby. Maybe. Is there any skin off your nose? Nope. Cigarette? Then how about a match for me, huh? I suppose so. Let's see. Yeah. Here. Thanks. Hey, these are cute. That crimp border on the edge, especially. The one put there by somebody's jittery thumbnail, huh? Listen, I... Maybe I, your I... eyes are bad. Maybe not, Chris. But you better do something about your nerves. They're shot. Good night, baby. I didn't look back, but I knew she was watching me all the way out the door and down the street, so I made it real good as far as the next block and around the corner. Then I doubled back fast and stayed in the shadows until I got within sight of the Albatross Cafe again. And in time to see a man ease out a side door and slip out of sight among the pilings under the building. I moved in closer and found a rickety trail of greasy planks that led out through the forest of slimy pilings under the piers. I felt better on a tight rope, but it was home ground to Johnny Dyke. I felt my way slowly along the slippery planks. And from behind the piling, an arm like steel springs snapped under my chin while a hand pressed the point of a long, thin knife with a curved white handle up against my throat. You said you wanted to talk to me, Marlowe, so talk. But fast, because I don't have much time. Ease up on my throat, will you? Okay. There. Now, you're a sucker. Why don't you try to give up? I'm trying to even the score. Get out of town and forget it. Yeah, sure. Sure to you, that's easy. You didn't spend three long years in the cooler for something you didn't do. I'm going to get even, all right. I don't know how for sure yet, but I will. Wind up right back in the coop, sucker. If it keeps this time, is it going to be worth it? Could be. I was a good boy up there. Every time I wanted to slug a guard, I said, Mike Vasso to myself instead. Now I got it all bottled up inside me. I'm not going to carry all that hate around forever. I'm going to get rid of it, and there's only one way to do it. Ed Giles was right. You've got rawhide for brains. You better put the knife away, Johnny. I think we've got visitors. Sure we have, Marlowe. Rats. Big ones. The piers are full of them. You should feel right at home, Just punk. don't sleep too long, pal. Oh! Between the... Between the throbbing in my head and... And the numbness across my shoulders where my back had struck the planks... It took me five minutes to get to my feet and another five to climb up the street level. By then, the pier was deserted. So I headed for the basso docks on the double with the unpleasant answer to my client's question, plus the added attraction that I'd even seen the knife Dyke intended to use. I still had a block to go when I saw a hulk that had to be Sharky stride off the pier and turn in my direction. When he got close enough, I hailed him. Yeah, I'm Sharky. What do you want, bud? Is Mike still in the office? Who wants to know? Come on, this is no time to stall. Heavy on Marlowe, I'm working for him. I got a message you won't keep. Is he there or no? No. The office is locked up. He's gone. 
I'm looking for him myself. Why? What do you want him for? Because I'm pretty sure that Johnny Dyke is holed up in the back room of the Albatross Cafe. Yeah, I only wish you were right, Sharky, but you're about a half hour too late. Hey, what was that? Came from up the street there. Yeah. Let's go, Sharky. Maybe we're both too late. Let's find out. Yeah. Hey. What? The dame by the guardrail. That's Ginger, a pal of Mike Bassels. Yeah, you're right. Ginger? Ginger, what's the matter? What happened? Go down there. Take a look, will you? I'm scared. Down where, Ginger? In the water. I think I'm, maybe I'm going to be sick. Marlo. Hey, Marlo, come here. Look. Holy smoke. That's, that's Mike down there with a knife in his back. Yeah. A long, thin knife with a curved white handle. Belongs to a guy named Johnny Dyke. In just a moment, the second act of Philip Marlowe. But first, he may be a close neighbor of yours. At least he lives quite near you. You go to the polls, you elect him, you bid him farewell, trusting him to represent you in Washington. From then on, what happens to your congressman in the nation's capital? What pressures are brought to bear on him? In how many hundreds of fields must he rapidly become a good expert? Why does he vote as he does? Tomorrow night on CBS, you'll hear Ralph Bellamy, star of radio, stage, and screen, playing a typical freshman congressman in the 81st Congress. His story will be a drama taken from interviews and talks with many regular congressmen, with Washington experts, with politicians, with, yes, with voters like yourselves. This CBS documentary unit drama, The People's Choice, starring Ralph Bellamy, will come to you over most of these same CBS stations. Now with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, Night Tide. Lying with his face muzzled into the sand and the rest of them half submerged in the shallow lapping water, Mike Besso was violent death at its ugliest. Ginger turned and walked slowly away from us, trembling like a wino caught in the morning sun. But I told Sharky to go get the police. And I headed for the albatross where I figured I might get a lead on Mike Basso's murderer. When I got there, I skipped the formality of the front door and quietly moved around to the back, where I entered without knocking and made my way along a narrow, dusky corridor as far as a half-open door labeled Private, where I met Christine Dyke talking on the telephone. She looked up and gasped at the sight of me and then slammed the phone down abruptly. I was willing to bet that the party on the other end had been husband Johnny. Nobody else. What do you want, Marlowe? Most of all, one Johnny Dyke and handcuffs. Don't bother with the my man pitch, honey, because at the moment the lyrics will make me sick. I just left a corpse that used to be Mike Basso. Basso? Dead, Marlowe? Yeah. All because of Johnny's knife. It's sticking in his back, Chris. No, no, Marlowe. Johnny wouldn't do a thing like that. He couldn't. You're wrong, Chris. He did. Now, where is he? I, I don't know. You're lying, baby. You were just talking to him on the phone. You gotta know. No, no, I don't. He he didn't say where he was or... Oh, what? Or anything about Basil being dead, so... Don't move, Marlowe. Well, husband with knife, wife with gun. Charming couple. Never mind that. I'm not going to see Johnny in trouble again for something he didn't do. He'll get in that closet, Marlowe, where you'll be out of the way. Now. All right. In it is. 
But first, baby, a word of advice. He isn't worth it, believe me. I don't. So get in and keep your mouth shut. The closet in Chris's office, which doubled as a storeroom for the restaurant, had no window and a three-inch thick oak for a door. So I was 20 minutes as a one-man mob scene bouncing the inventory around before I was heard. And a little man with a big meat cleaver who belonged in the kitchen opened up and demanded to know what I was doing in there. I heaved the number 10 tomato juice can at him for an answer, started running and didn't stop until I was outside, in my car, and pointed for Ed Giles' cottage. The only other place I knew where Johnny Dyke might go for help. I came to a stop at the house and found Giles himself standing on the outside steps looking puzzled at a pair of taillights that were blinking out of sight. I knew I was too late. Yeah, Marlowe, it was Christine. And all upset about getting her hands on $500. Said I had to lend it to her for Johnny's sake. She say why? No, only that he needed help. Murderers usually do. Your boy Dyke just killed Basso Giles. A knife in his back. Johnny? Johnny killed Mike. About an hour ago over on the beach... Tell me, did you give her the money? Ah. She ran out of the house before I even got to my safe. Without saying anything? Without saying a word, Marlowe. I wouldn't even know she was gone yet if I hadn't heard... Heard what, girl? The desk drawer in the living room. Come on, Marlowe, quickly. I heard the drawer open when I was inside near my safe. I wondered what she was looking for when I called for it. You got no answer. You ran outside after her, is that yeah, it? Yeah, and I... Hey, Marlowe, they're gone. The boat keys. She must have taken them for Johnny. Asking for the money was only a trick to get me out of wait the room. Wait a minute, wait a minute. What boat keys are you talking about, guys? The master said, Marlowe, two keys on a large brass ring. They fit the ignition lock on any boat at the Basso docks. She knew I had them. Yeah, but she also knew that even as a friend of Johnny's, you'd balk at handing him over if you knew he'd killed Basso, right? Or are you still shielding old friends, Giles? Which is it? Don't be stupid, Marlowe. I'd draw the line someplace. All right. Now, one more question. Do you have a gun? A gun? Oh, yeah, I... I do. Good. And get it, because we're going to the Basso Docks, Giles. Come on. Both piled into my car, and in something less than ten minutes, ripped through the wide, empty streets to the Basso Docks, which were two parallel piers set about a hundred feet apart and jutting out deep into the bay with more than a score of boats moored to the inward side of each. But when we were out of the car and saw nothing of Johnny Dyke or the girl... And heard no sound other than the dull thump of wood on wood and the rhythmic slap of water against the hulls. I decided that we should split. And I told Giles to search one pier carefully while I took off for the other. But a minute later, just as I started out alone over the oil-soaked planking, I remembered the panoramic view of the docks I'd gotten earlier that evening from Basso's office. So I stopped, then turned and ran for the flight of wooden steps that led to it. I was halfway up them when I stopped again. There was somebody ahead of me and with a key opening the office door. I crouched low and moved closer one slow step at a time toward what I knew might be Johnny Dyke. But in the next second, a light clicked on in the office and I forgot all about being subtle and leveled the thirty-eight in my hand at the belt buckle of the sharply silhouetted figure. It was Sharky. I wouldn't move if I were you, Buster. Uh, who is it? Marlowe, Sharky. Who are you expecting? No, nobody, funny man. But I wouldn't want it to be Johnny Dyke at the moment. He might want to settle old scores. You know, Marlowe, the price for two murders is the same as the price for one. So I've heard. But now, unless we stray from the subject, Sharky, do you mind telling me what you're doing here? And don't say I'm getting personal or I will. Come on, talk up like a big boy. All right. I'm here because I don't like cops. 
And right now they're down on the beach swimming around Basso's body like kids around a maypole. Also, I figured that before he blew, Dyke might come up here after the money he knew Basso always kept on hand. Satisfied? In a word, no. Why not? Because I buy the switch first. You're here, Sharky, to steal that dough and let people think that Dyke took it on his way out. You can't prove that, Paul. Only because I haven't got time. You see, Sharky, it's an odds-on bet that Dyke's out on one of those boats right now. Just waiting for the... For... What is it, Marlowe? Sharky, what time is it? Huh? The time! Quick, what is it? Well, it's 11.35. Uh-huh. Why? What's that got to do with Dyke shoving off? From where I stand, everything. Now, look, Sharky, get back down to those cops. Get him up here. And... Uh, Marlowe, look. Over there at the end of the Starbucks pier. It's Dyke. Yeah, and trying to get away. Go on, Sharky. Get to the cops fast. <laughs> took the wooden steps back down to the docks three at a time and then raced across the starboard pier and out on the length of it until I was close enough to the end where I could see Johnny Dyke climbing over one of the boats. I was about to call to him to stop when I saw something else. Standing almost opposite me in the shadow of some nearby rigging, gun in hand and taking careful aim at Dyke, was Ed Giles. His finger slowly closing on the trigger. It was too late for words, so I followed suit and fired before he did. <laughs> Got him high in the shoulder. You fool, Marlo. It's me, Giles. Dyke is out there. I know. The man who murdered Basso isn't. He's right here, Giles. Huh? What do you mean, Marlowe? But I just found out you're a liar about seeing Dyke last night from the deck of Basso's launch. You couldn't have. So what? So you weren't shielding him, Giles. You were framing him. Framing him so that you could get rid of Basso and pin his murder on Dyke. Who you'd also get rid of while playing public citizen who's helping the private detective apprehend a killer. But what do you say, Giles? Is that it? You're a smart guy. Figure it out for yourself. Come clean, oh. Giles, or I'll blow your head off. All right. All right, Chris and I framed Dyke. Chris? Yeah. What are you giving me? Honest, Mama. We figured that we'd be in the clear with the money we took from Basso. And with Johnny well tucked away in a big, strong prison. You dirty louse. Keep talking. So we took advantage of Johnny's loud mouth and incidentally of you as well. With Basso gone, I was going to step into his spot. You're the one with a loud mouth, Giles. Well, little Red Riding Hood, and I went for your line. Funny what a sucker a smart guy can be. He wasn't the only sucker, baby. <gasps> Johnny! Stay back, Johnny. Shoot if they move an inch. She's got a gun. Shoot him, Chris. Shoot. Come on. Stay away, Johnny. Get away from me. Shoot him. You wouldn't shoot Please. me, Chris. Please get You wouldn't away shoot from your me. own shoot husband. Him. Shoot The him. man you talked into running away until things quieted down. Shoot. The man you'd move heaven and earth to help so he could be shot in the back. Johnny. But you can't shoot me while I'm facing you, can you? You cheap, filthy, double-trusting little scum! That's enough, Johnny! Cut it out! Okay, Marlowe. Okay. It was a long hour of questions and answers before the police were finished. And they'd left with Chris and Giles in tow. And Johnny and I were standing alone out on the end of the pier, where I was looking down into the shallow black water below and listening to him try to convince himself that the whole night had been something more than a bad dream. Chris against me. Giles against me from the very beginning, Marlowe. That's right. Giles because he wanted to be in Basso's place. My wife, Chris, because... She wanted him. That's right. When Basso hired me to see what you had in mind after that beating he'd taken from what he thought was you, but was really Giles laying the groundwork, I fell into the role of star witness. Hmm? So 
somebody reliable enough for them both to play against. Oh. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, so you could testify that it, at first, Giles had tried to shield me like a, a good friend. Yeah. And in the end, had to kill me when I tried to escape. Sure. And just to make sure there were no slips, Cress kept feeding you instructions under the heading of wifely advice. Yeah, it practically ran on a timetable, Johnny. Yeah. But there was one slip. I found out Giles was a liar and trying to frame, not shield you. Huh? How, how was that, Marlowe? Well, look, he said he saw you beat up Basso in his office at 11.30 last night when he was down on the deck of Basso's private launch, investigating a strange noise. Yeah? Well, Johnny, he couldn't have. Because at 11.30 last night, as well as 11.30 tonight, the tide was low. Of course, the launch with it. And from Basso's office, you couldn't even see the launch. Or the other way around. From the launch, you couldn't see the office, right? That's it. So in the end, Johnny, you did have a friend who stuck by you. The sea. Yeah. I guess that's as good a place as any for me. Maybe the sooner the better. Any place in particular? No, just the sea. I'll drop you a card whenever I make port, Marlowe. After all, I really had two friends... I won't forget that. So long, fellow. I watched him walk away until he'd gone the length of the empty pier and was swallowed up in the emptier night. Then I turned back to the shallow black water beneath me, which, where the sea and the land were close to meeting, was coated thick with oil and dirty and almost stagnant. And I thought a lot about Johnny. People like Chris and Giles he'd mixed with and trusted. I felt sorry for him. But then... Then I looked up a little. Away from the water at the pier and... Out toward the open sea where it was deeper. Cleaner. And the further I looked... The cleaner it seemed to be. Then I remembered that was where Johnny Dyke was heading... And I felt better. The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, created by Raymond Chandler, star Gerald Moore and are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Mel Dinelli, Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Michael Ann Barrett, Lou Krugman, Howard Culver, Frank Gerstle, Georgia Ellis, and Frank Richards. The special music is by Richard O'Runt. Be sure to be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... I was hired to find a thief, and I did. 8,000 miles away from home. But first, I found a hammy Othello, a lush with a luger, and a fresh corpse in the closet. All because the only woman in sight wouldn't play fair. (laughs) 